Hi everyone, I'm Chris Soplensky, and this is EHS on Tap. OSHA announced its silica final rule last spring, and it immediately received criticism from industry groups. These groups call the standard unobtainable and very costly, and they claim that the rule isn't really necessary to improve worker safety. Basically, the rule establishes two standards, one for the general industry and maritime, and one for the construction industry and it limits exposure to an 8-hour time-weighted average of 50 micrograms of respirable crystalline silica per cubic meter of air. That's a 50% cut from the existing standard for general industry and a five-fold decline for the construction standard. Today we're talking with Adele Abrams, a preeminent occupational safety attorney. Adele will be speaking about silica later this month at the ASSE Region 4 PDC in Louisiana and in Chicago at the MCA conference in March. Adele will also be giving a presentation on the silica rule at BLR's upcoming safety summit being held April 3rd through 5th in Austin, Texas. Adele, welcome to EHS on Tap. Thank you. So industry groups claim that the rule is beyond the capacity of existing dust filtration and removal technology. Do you think the standard is unobtainable? Well, I do have to disagree that it is unobtainable. Uh, first of all, uh, since the original standard was promulgated, which was back around 1971, there's been a lot of technological advances. And as this rule came out uh, in March of 2016, even more manufacturers are bringing control methodology products to market. So it's a little bit of a field of dreams approach. If you build it, they will come uh, to look at it that way. Um, I've done a fair bit of consulting work for some of my clients in silica-containing environments, and the overexposures uh, above what will be the new level are not as bad in a lot of industry sectors as I think people anticipate. Uh, there's some common sense uh, controls, even changes in housekeeping methods uh, that can reduce exposures significantly uh, by applying some best practices. So while the rule does emphasize engineering controls, uh, there are a lot of things attainable on the market that can help most workplaces control exposures down uh, to the 50 micrograms per cubic meter level. Now, in construction, OSHA itself acknowledges that there are at least 18 tasks or types of equipment for which you cannot uh, meet 50 micrograms, even with the available controls uh, in terms of engineering, work practices, and administrative. And so they've included Table 1 in the rule, and this is kind of the infamous Table 1, but OSHA says for construction, if you follow the engineering controls, the work practice controls, and provide the respiratory protection that they've specified in the chart, you won't get cited as an employer even if your exposure levels are above 50 because workers will otherwise be adequately protected. And out of the 2.3 million workers affected by this rule, 2 million of them are in construction. So if this rule plays out as OSHA anticipates and the majority of construction employers can adopt Table 1 as their written exposure control plan and their approach to managing silica exposures, 
I don't think that this is going to be quite as burdensome as people anticipate. Uh, there are definitely some general industry work work uh, places that are going to have some problems. There are going to be some uh, activities such as abrasive blasting uh, for which it's going to be pretty difficult to maintain exposures below 50. But as long as employers uh, adopt all feasible engineering controls and then put in appropriate personal protective equipment, they're going to be fairly immunized from expensive citations. Interesting. The other uh, grounds on which uh, industry groups are, are, are against this is the cost. So they claim that the standard is going to cost $5 billion annually to implement. Do you think it's overly costly? Well, you know, they say figures lie and liars figure, and there's a lot of numbers bouncing around about the ultimate implementation costs of this rule. Uh, in OSHA's own uh, final rule, they estimate that it's going to be a little bit over $1 billion per year to implement. Uh, the industry folks who are litigating this uh, have projected that it would cost $5 billion, and uh, just as recently as a week or so ago, uh, I saw the crystal and silica rule on a list of targeted regulations uh, from the uh, Trump administration showing regulatory burden. They had attached a $9 billion per year cost to this rule. So as they used to say on the X-Files, the truth is out there somewhere. <laughs> Uh, the vast majority of the cost for this, though, is for engineering controls. And I think that once employers get a handle on this and adopt the engineering controls, it's not so much that it will all, always be a once-and-done approach, but for a majority of the uh, stable workplaces as opposed to transient work sites, uh, once you identify your engineering controls, you're not going to have those repeated costs year after year. There will be ancillary costs for adopting uh, initially and then adapting a written exposure control plan. There's going to be costs associated with training of workers uh, on the rule, on the health effects, on the protections, uh, and the overall implementation. But uh, I think that the costs ultimately are going to be closer to that $1 billion figure than, say, the $5 billion or the $9 billion figure. Okay, great. Um, so how about for um, the, rule, the rule itself, uh, industry claims that compliance with the old standard fully protects workers. Um, and according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Silicosis mortality fell by more than 90% from 1968 to 2010 with the old PEL. So could worker safety be improved without such a rule? Is it just an issue of enforcement? Um, in other words, if the old standard was enforced, would the desired worker protections have been sufficient? Well, that certainly is the litigating position uh, that a lot of the industry groups opposing the rule are taking, and there is some merit to that. Uh, it is clear that OSHA has not universally enforced the uh, existing permissible exposure limit, and it also is true that uh, we have had a reduction in silicosis mortality from 1968, which was before OSHA even existed, and so there were no rules at all up to 2010. 
Um, I think there's been general uh, improved awareness of the issues associated with silica. And frankly, there was a wave of litigation in the early 2000s where there were just, you know, tens of thousands of cases of personal injury and wrongful death associated with crystalline silica that were filed. That really was a wake-up call to industries across the board who had exposure for these types of suits. So I think people stepped up their game a little bit uh, during that period as well. Um, you know, if employers uh, did everything that they could to actually comply with the current Pell, uh, we would see a reduction in morbidity and mortality associated uh, with crystalline silica. The problem is that in, in these intervening years since the current permissible exposure limit was adopted, First of all, you've had the International Agency for Research on Cancer in 1997 identify silica as a group one human carcinogen. Uh, The U.S. government program, the National Toxicology Program, uh, came to a similar finding. And there have been over 50 peer-reviewed studies out there um, concerning the health effects of crystalline silica and indicating that exposures above 50 micrograms per cubic meter are more likely to result in the development of diseases ranging from silicosis, which of course is the focus of your question, to things like lung cancer, renal disease, and uh, COPD, and even autoimmune disorders. So silicosis is not the only uh, health condition correlated with silica exposure. And if you want to avoid all of these adverse health effects, the prudent employer would want to control exposures below 50 just to be consistent with what the scientific uh, evidence is that's out there. Uh, controlling down to 100 is better than controlling to 250. Uh, the, the current uh, construction and maritime exposure level is 250 micrograms per cubic meter, and that just clearly is not a safe level. The general industry level of 100, if they had adopted that across the board for construction and maritime, I would feel pretty comfortable with that as a good rule, but certainly cutting it down to 50 is going to be even more protective for workers. Okay. Um, On the flip side, uh, there has been opposition by labor coalitions that the standard doesn't go far enough and that the medical testing provisions can be improved. What's your take on that? Well, um, the opposition from labor, um, who are also litigants in this case, Uh, seems to focus on the fact that they feel the 50 micrograms per cubic meter permissible exposure level adopted by OSHA is not sufficiently protective. And the reason for that is that the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, uh, or ACGIH, several years ago adopted a new exposure limit that they advocate as being a prudent level. And that uh, is their threshold limit value, that's what they call it, and it's 25 micrograms per cubic meter. Now, OSHA adopted that as its uh, action level, which is the trigger for a lot of things in this rule, including the medical surveillance uh, or medical testing provisions. Um, And in suing OSHA over this rule, Uh, the uh, labor groups have advocated adopting 25 micrograms as an enforceable permissible exposure limit um, and then having an action level that would be half that, uh, which would be the trigger for enrolling employees uh, in medical surveillance programs. Uh, So that is is really uh, their take on that. Um, In my view, 25 micrograms is not a feasible level in any way, shape, manner, or form Hmm. as an enforceable Pell because it is 
fairly down at the limits of detection. Uh, it cannot be replicated uh, with precision time and time again. Um, and it is going to be unattainable for the vast majority of silica-containing workplaces. So I don't see any scenario where OSHA would drop the Pell further than what they have adopted. Um, the one wild card on the medical uh, testing is really going to be how is OSHA going to define uh, a finding of silicosis? Uh, the Mine Safety and Health Administration, which is OSHA's sister agency, has for years said that if you have a 1-0 chest x-ray or worse, uh, as read by an ILO-certified B-reader, that constitutes a reportable diagnosis of silicosis, even if the person is uh, asymptomatic. And OSHA really hasn't provided any clarification on that. Um, so that's the real uh, wild card in here in terms of the medical surveillance programs. If they adopt the same test uh, that uh, MSHA is using, we may see a real spike in reportable silicosis cases in the wake of this rule, which is going to uh, uh, perhaps be a self-fulfilling prophecy about their projections uh, uh, about the rates of silicosis uh, under the current Pell, um, or it may just be that we're having earlier detection and earlier intervention. Um, what's clear, though, is that uh, there's probably going to be a spike uh, in silicosis cases once the medical surveillance program takes effect, um, and then there will be some ancillary litigation coming as a result. And uh, speaking of litigation, um, uh, many lawsuits were filed last year when the rule was finalized. So what's the current state of litigation around the country? Well, believe it or not, this all comes down to a lottery. And uh, the industry-friendly groups, we'll call it, uh, filed uh, their initial challenge to the silica rule in some of the circuit courts. This is the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, that are t tend to be employer-friendly uh, or anti-regulation. And then the uh, labor groups uh, that sued OSHA over this, they filed in the Third Circuit uh, up in Pennsylvania and also in the D.C. Circuit, which tend to be more adverse to OSHA and a little bit more labor-friendly. Well, when you have the same rule being contested by multiple parties, they literally do a lottery to determine which circuit wins and will handle the consolidated case. And wow. in this situation, the D.C. Circuit, uh, U.S. Court of Appeals, won. Uh, so OSHA has a little bit of an edge there. And uh, there was an initial move, of course, to stay the effective date of the rule, which currently is June 23, uh, 2017, for enforcement in the construction sector. And the judge denied that. There was also a recent motion by the industry litigants uh, to try to delay briefing and, you know, drag their heels on this a little bit, waiting to see whether the rule might be killed by the Trump administration. And the judge literally, uh, uh, on Valentine's Day, or, or excuse me, the day before Valentine's Day, uh, denied that. So uh, the briefing is going to have to continue apace. Uh, the, the one real interesting angle on this litigation is that while it might be tempting for the new administration, who I'm sure is, uh, con you know, contra this rule, uh, to just say, well, you know, we're just not going to fight to preserve it. They can't really do that. They can't cut a side deal just with the industry litigants and withdraw the rule because the union groups are also litigants. So any settlement is going to have to be signed off by all of the litigating parties. And, you know, that was 
in retrospect, a pretty smart move by the unions to sue over this just to get a seat at that settlement table. Mm. So, uh, you know, all bets are off in terms of uh, how this may end up being resolved. I, I think a delay in the rule, perhaps uh, through Congress, could occur. But right now, the U.S. Court of Appeals D.C. Circuit does not in- seem inclined to stay the effective date of this at all. Okay, thanks. So um, you mentioned Congress. Do you think that the Republican Congress will overturn the rule? Uh, We're hearing that they could use the Congressional Review Act to toss it out. Well, this is going to be uh, a little bit of stay tuned, I suppose. Uh, The one thing that is clear, though, is that under the the current rules for the Congressional Review Act, they cannot use that to kill the silica rule. They they are limited to using that within close proximity to the the date of the rule. And uh, the silica rule was released in March of 2016. Uh, The Congressional Review Act can only be used to rescind standards that were issued by the Obama administration in June 2016 or later. Mm. So uh, it's a safe harbor from that. There are uh, some other pieces of of legislation being considered by Congress, and I've heard even rumored some other ones, including an automatic stay on any rules that have not yet taken effect. That would impact the silica rule if something like that is passed. There was also legislation passed by the House of Representatives, but not yet considered by the Senate at this time, uh, called the Midnight Rules Relief Act, and that would allow Congress en masse to rescind final rules issued by the Obama administration uh, without going through looking at their their particular individual merits, uh, kind of one at a time. Uh, But the problem, again, is that that legislation, as enacted by the House, would only reach back to regulations that came out in June 2016 or later. So again, it's fairly safe there. What Congress can do is perhaps pass a rule saying that any uh, standards or regulations that are in litigation cannot go into effect. That could capture the silica rule. And then the final thing, which is a little bit of a a, a big hammer uh, that they tend to use reluctantly, is to put an appropriations rider on the OSHA funding bill. And, of course, we're already in fiscal year 2017, and we do not have a uh, Congress-passed labor HHS appropriations bill, which is the funding bill for OSHA. We're currently operating under a continuing resolution, and I don't know whether they're even going to try to revisit 2017 funding bills at this point or just move on looking at the fiscal 2018 uh, appropriations bills. Either way, if they uh, want to, they could attach a provision to the OSHA appropriations bill called a rider saying, in effect, that OSHA could not expend any funds to enforce the new silica rule hmm. or to implement it, to put out guidance. Um, so those are uh, a few of the tools that they would have. But the Congressional Review Act, unless they actually went back in and amended that act um, to allow a further reach back, uh, there are other OSHA rules that will be affected by this, like uh, the beryllium rule, for example, walking and working surfaces, and even uh, the continuing violation rule. But this, the crystal and silica rule and the electronic record-keeping rule, although they're both in litigation, 
both of those were issued by OSHA in the Federal Register far enough back that they are protected from rescission under the Congressional Review Act. Gotcha. Wow. Well, I I learned a lot, um, and I appreciate uh, you taking the time to give us all these insights, and I guess we're just going to have to stay tuned and, and see how this all plays out. That's right, and uh, in the meantime, I would just urge employers to be proactive. Start doing some exposure monitoring. Get a, get a handle on what your actual exposures are for different tasks in your workplace. Start doing a little bit of legwork. Find out what resources and engineering controls are available to you, because if you wait until June and this rule is not stayed in some way, uh, it's going to be coming at you like a freight train, and you're going to not be able to get all the work that's necessary done in time. That sounds like great advice. Thanks again so much for joining us and providing these uh, helpful tips. Thank you. Again, you can join Adele at BLR's Safety Summit being held in April in Austin, Texas, where she'll be speaking about the silico rule as well as walking and working surfaces and fall protection. To learn more, visit safetysummit.blr.com. For EHS on Tap, I'm Chris Oplensky. Thanks for joining us.